Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the podcast today. It's been a while since we've filmed the last one. Today, I have an um, awesome special guest from Canada. What's going on, Michael? How are you? Hey, uh, it's good. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing wonderful. It's, it's good to be back and good to be recording these. And I can't wait to just hear a little bit about your life, your story, where you come from, cool. and kind of how yeah. you got diagnosed. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. So... Michael's on the show today, and we've been talking a little bit about how he got diagnosed with Klinefelter syndrome. Um, so let's just kind of—I would love to kind of have you dive into like kind of how you found out, or what was pre-life like before Klinefelter syndrome, and just let you talk, let you go for it. Yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, so I'm 34, and I found out when I was 32. I uh, I. I just found it, I found it by accident. And I know that that can sometimes happen in our community. It's, um, I, I was, I thought I was losing some hair. I told my, uh, naturopath at the time, like, Hey, like, you know, is there something I can take to, to maybe mitigate some of the, the hair loss? And, um, and she was, she just said, thankfully, she just said, Hey, we should do some blood work. We'll do like a full, um, like hormonal test. And, uh, the work and uh, the, my LH and FSH levels were, you know, five or six times what they were supposed to be for a male my age. And, um, you know, I, I didn't even know what those things, I didn't know what that meant. Um, and when I Googled it, like, I could only find out what that meant for women. Like, there was no articles on what that might mean for men. Um, I mean, I, I eventually I found it, but it was hard to find it. And um, anyway, so that you know, that's the first sort of point of confusion. And, so that's kind of um, like what that that's kind of like what triggered it was the hair loss for you, and then yeah, you you learned about your elevated FSH L yeah. L H L F yeah levels, and then what what did you do kind of once you went to Google and and what was the time period like? Yeah, and, and I'll just mention for anyone who might not know what those are, the luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulation hormone. Um, but um, yeah, in terms of what was that? Sorry, the question was, what, what was that like to find that out? Or yeah, well, what was it like to like find out that you had those levels, and then how did it like how did it all of a sudden push you into diving deeper and trying to find out yeah. why? Well, it was terrifying. It was terrifying because I, I didn't know what they were, and like I'm staring at this like blood work sheet that just like where there's these levels, I don't know what they are. And they're in the, like, they, they literally are like colored red. <laughs> so I'm just like, Oh my God. Um, so it's terrifying. But then um, why I pushed further, I, I wouldn't have pushed further. My partner was like, you can't just accept this. You should, cause I was just going to sit on it. Like I was like, I, you know, I was, I was just, um, I was devastated, but I, I couldn't move. And so she, she really, you know, encouraged me to go for it. So, um, uh, I ended up with an endocrinologist, like my, my general practitioner, my doctor uh, sent me to an endocrinologist and he looked at it. He did an examination of my testicles um, and he, he ordered a karyotype test and said like, it might be Klinefelter, but, um, but, and he said it this way, which, you know, in hindsight, of course, this, this is what he said, but he said, um, but, you know, but don't worry, don't worry because, you know, you're, you're a PhD student, you know, you you, I don't, I, I don't think that this is going to, you know, I don't, don't worry about it. You know, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, and, and I'd like to get into why I think that's so problematic. We can get into that later if you like, but, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, but, um, but yeah, so, you know, sent me home and then a week later I got the news and I found out, um, the day of my partner and I going out for a Valentine's day makeup date. <laughs> 
so we that, went from yeah that we went from enjoying theory. like amazing food to like oh, I might not be able to have kids. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it was devastating. So what was what was that delivery from that doctor? You know, when like he, I want to yeah. really dive into this, and then we can move yeah, sure. move on with other things. But what was the delivery yeah, like? So like when he actually told me it was Kleinfeld. Yeah, like how did he deliver yeah. it? What did he tell you? Did he give you resources? Um, he didn't give me many resources. He told me it's Kleinfelter. He said, like, he said that, uh, and I had also done like a sperm analysis at the time. And he said, yeah, you, you know, you have no sperm and Kleinfelter means you probably will be infertile. Like there's a really low chance that you can make this happen. And like, it, it was like not computing. Like it, like the, the gravity of that wasn't really, st- like it wasn't, hitting it was more just like i don't even know what this ks means other than like the google searches that i'd looked at that say all these like you know outdated um biased details of of, of, of certain populations of people that, that that have had this this um this condition in the past and you know he, he just kind of laid it on me and just kind of went I, I think he was trying to like empathize but he, i just remember it. it was so cold he was like yeah it sucks you know, oh my God. you know, and so I've since found a fantastic endocrinologist who specializes in Kleinfelter. So, um, thankfully, but yeah, at the time, um, that doctor wasn't great. So. And so what was that? Like, you know, you mentioned about the delivery and, and mm. kind of him telling you that you have a PhD not to worry. Like, why is it so problematic? It's problematic because, um, because it, it reveals a bias in his training that says people with X, <laughs> you know, pun intended, pe- people with XXY, I was going to say people with X or Y, um, people with, with a, a particular condition um, can only be a certain, either either be a certain, uh, achieve certain things maybe, or um, can only be so smart, you know, um, which is just, it's so fucked up, you know, um, and it's really just not coming from a place of really thinking critically, right? Um, and most likely, you know, if this guy encountered Kleinfelter in med school, it might have been like a, you know, a very short essay that they wrote in a class that they've forgotten about, right? So, um, and and I've encountered this over and over and over again in in uh, in some cases in therapy, in some cases with other doctors, where over and over again they'll say like, you know, you're you're a Kleinfelter, but uh, but it's not severe Kleinfelter because you clearly you know you're look how successful you are. Look at look at all these things, and you know, it, uh, not even talking about what that might mean in terms of um, how how messed up that is in terms of describing other people. Just for myself, the amount of hard work I've had to put in. <laughs> to figure out how to stay focused in a conversation, to um, to walk down the street with larger breasts and and be okay with that, to go to hot yoga class and stare at, be, be, like, be in the mirror with my shirt off with all these men and women around me when I'm the one that doesn't look like I'm supposed to look. So for, for that person to say that, like I think, um, and I've, I've had plenty of um, medical professionals say similar things like it, um, I got to a point where I'm now saying, don't say that. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I, I actually, I do correct them. I say that, why, you know, where are you coming from? Why do you say that? Is that appropriate? Is that, yeah, where is that founded on? You know? It's one of those things that I don't like, 
they they have like a per- perceived they pre I, i'm trying to find the word like they they basically are saying like oh you have an extra x chromosome you can't do this like they yeah. were told that you we are going to be limited and all these things and yeah. it's like that just drives us like th- mm. those of us that have that drive to be like who the hell are you to tell me what i can and can't do mm. but it's also very discouraging too you know it can be incredibly discouraging um i mean yeah you so found either way it's Either way, it's not okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you found out later on yeah. in life. I mean, I found out in utero, so I've I've known about oh. it. But what's interesting about you saying like all the hard work, right? No one really yeah. sees the hard work that all of us mm-hmm. put in on the back end yeah. of being yeah. comfortable with your body, being comfortable with yourself, like learning how to mm-hmm. communicate, all the extra work that that takes for us to get where we are. Like yeah. it, it's it's definitely I'm so glad you're on the podcast today. I'm so glad you're talking about yeah. this because these are things that a lot of families need to understand. Like there's so much work that get, that we put into ourselves, but it's so beneficial once the hard work is, you know, once you put that in. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a shout out to my family for, they put in a ton of work too, you know, and, and I'm really grateful for, uh, for and my partner and, and, and everyone that I've, I've been with. Um, so you mentioned you really rock solid. Yeah. You mentioned you have a partner of a pretty long time and, and yeah. how was the infertility thing with the part with your partner? How did, Whoa, yeah. how did that go about? Well, um, so she had, uh, she had helped uh, a friend of, I'm trying to make sure that I don't um, sort of, uh, reveal too much. Um, she knew someone that, that had gone through donor uh, conception. And um, so when she found out that infertility was for me, it, immediately it was urgent that we figure this out because time was not on our side right so um you know within a month of finding out we were um we were looking for fertility clinics we were contacting uh therapists that could maybe help us through this um we ended up with uh we ended up with a, a great fertility doctor who is um I'm, I'm forgetting now exactly what his position is, but he's he's um, he's a professor. He's he's involved in, you know, I'm forgetting the name, but the the sort of fertility associations in Canada is a very very well respected. Uh, Clifford Lebrack is, is, is the name in Toronto. Um, but yeah, we, we we just dove into it. Like I I immediately felt like, well, you know, like the sooner we get a chance to do an MTZ, the micro uh, micro TZ, which is the surgery that um, uh, one would need to do to potentially extract sperm if, it, if it's there at all. Um, uh, the, yeah, the sooner we could do it, the, the, the sooner we wanted to do it. Um, but, but honestly, dude, it was like, <laughs> it, we were just, um, it felt like we were running, a, like running like two marathons, like running two marathons, like hard, um, when really it would have been nice to just like slow down at a certain point. But, um, so did yeah, you, so, so hmm. did, uh, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Do you mean no, that you okay. like got your diagnosis and then all of a sudden you found out that like yeah. you were infertile and then instead yeah. of coping with the actual diagnosis itself, yeah. you all of a sudden hit the ground running on like, yeah. okay, I'm infertile. What do we got to do? How, like, yeah. did you, yeah. did you attempt micro or did you like, did you guys come to the realization that you needed to just pull back or, or no, you know, so. So we wanted to. I'm so glad you asked that. Yeah, we, we hit the ground running, um, and 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 that caused some problems with like me not being able to take testosterone because I testosterone would kill like exogenous testosterone would kill sperm production for X number of months if I like I said if I if I had it at all. So 
um, with the exception of reaching out to KS communities, which I started to do, um, my sort of self-discovery and self-exploration of this condition was really on the back burner while we tried to figure out the, the fertility piece. So um, within a month, we were sort of, we were at the fertility clinic. Um, we found a urologist that was going to be able to do the, the microtesi at um, Mount Sinai Hospital. This really well-renowned, very respected uh, urologist. But honestly, man, like the first appointment with this this doctor, um, he thought I had cancer. He looked at my, he felt my test, uh, my testicle, it was enlarged and hard, and he just thought immediately, he was like, this is probably cancer. So um, I had, I had plane tickets and a uh, pass for the Axis Kleinfelter conference in Atlanta last year, and and I had to cancel it because suddenly, like with a week's notice, we all thought I had um, cancer, and so we had to do the surgery, and I had my um, my left testicle removed, and um, you know, a week later or two weeks later after the biopsy, it turned out it was not cancer, thankfully. But then that meant I had to wait, you know, six months. Um, excuse me, six months to do the EMTZ because the doctor wanted to make sure that my body had like recovered and wasn't in shock anymore. And so then it was just like, um, you know, what's the next thing we need to do, which is um, find a donor and then, um, which, you know, the donor was fine. Like I, it, it went by quickly. Um, we, we, we had to pick a donor pretty quickly, but in Canada, um, in Canada, they can't be paid for, for donating. So we found most of the profiles we looked at were pretty clear that it was very altruistic. And, um, and we just, yeah, we actually kind of had fun with the process. You know, it was cute to see some of the things. And the, and the donor we ended up picking, um, the, their hobby or their pastime is, um, is, uh, is genealogy. So I, I just couldn't think of a better sort of hobby um, than, than somebody who really cares about where, where their, their family's history comes from, you know? So, so the, the six um, months that they yeah. required you to like do, did you, did, did that, was that like a time frame that you weren't willing to then spend another six months before you could do the surgery or were you yeah. like not being able to be on testosterone, right? Like that, <laughs> yeah, that was what awful. was, what was that like? Because you, you potentially knew that testosterone could possibly help you with yeah. some of the things in your life that you needed the help with. And all of a sudden yeah. here you are like kids, no kids, microtees, like testosterone, like all of these things and not even being able to cope yet. Yep. Yeah. It was, I don't know, like traumatic, I would say it was traumatic and traumatic in the, in the way of like not being able to stop and like take stock of what anything was other than to say, well, I, I, I can take stock just enough to, build to the next step, you know, without actually processing any grief. So, um, yeah, it was incredibly traumatic, but it was also, um, to me, it was just so important that, that my partner knew that I supported us and, and that, and I knew that she supported me and it was just, we were just trying to get through it together. And, um, there, there was another aspect in terms of the six months, which was, you know, we both thought like, okay, like, you know, what can I do for nutrition? What can I do for health? Like, you know, I, I um, with the exception of one slip up, I cut out cannabis and uh, I really tried to stop drinking. I, I don't really drink alcohol much anyway, but I, but I really tried to avoid it. And um, I really tried to be like, I like took on a Mediterranean diet because that's what the naturopath said to do. And I upped my vitamin D. And um, to this day, when I see a vitamin bottle, it still kind of makes me, it still hurts because I had to take like 
So you're ki- you're kind of on this. You've you've kind of come to this realization that you know donor sperm wasn't what you the route that you wanted to go. You or not donor sperm, um, microtease, and then you decided donor sperm. And what? what well, no, it, no, no. Microtease was was the route. Sorry. Let oh, me it was clear. okay. Um, yeah, like I I was I was doing everything I could to make my body as fertile as possible. Right. Oh, where okay. It was like maybe I have three, and maybe I could have four. You know, like that's basically where my mindset was at going through those six months. We we decided we were going to do the MTZ and our fertility doctor said that, um, that Kleinfelter sperm does not have a good success rate with thawing. So they said to us, let's do the IVF retrieval with my partner the day after my, my, my MTZ. And so we'll let the, uh, the, the tissue incubate overnight. And if there's anything there, they would use that and make the embryos. But we want that. He was like, but just so that my partner's IVF is not for nothing. Um, let's have a donor sperm lined up just in case. And okay. so, so we did the, we did the MTZ, it didn't work. Um, and then we ended up, uh, uh, with my partner, uh, we ended up making, uh, four healthy embryos, um, with the donor sperm and those are sitting in a freezer and we're looking in a few months to, to make a transfer. Well, that's, that's awesome. That's a, that's a big positive yeah. from there. That congratulations on that. I'm yeah. curious what was so, the microtease surgery like? If you don't mind digging yeah. into that, I think that there's a lot no of families out there that would love to hear yeah. what what the what it's like. And I know in Canada it might be different than the states or sure. different in other countries. Yeah. Um, well, um, it was uh, it, it was scary. You know, I mean, it was basically like it was like my one chance to confirm whether or not I was fertile. So like there was a ton of like it was just hard man. Um, uh, but the surgery itself, like I recovered within about three weeks, I want to say. Like, um, like the first week, like I was on painkillers and it it didn't really matter. The second and third week, like I was mobile, but it was still like you know there there would be some like scar tissue that was kind of forming and that was kind of painful. But after four weeks, I was. I was back at the yoga studio and like, you know, I had, I, I'm a, I'm a very experienced yoga practitioner. So I, I was like pretty aware of what my, what my limits were and, and everything. So, but you know, honestly, what I would say is that the, the recovery, like the recovery from surgery was recovery from surgery. So anyone that's had surgery, I mean, not to trivialize one surgery or the other, um, but it was, it was just a surgery recovery and that was okay. Um, wh- what I would say is that the, I think the most difficult part since then is like sometimes I feel like I have a phantom testicle. Like sometimes it's like there's like a feeling that something is missing. And sometimes I feel like like when I masturbate, sometimes I feel like there should be something there. And and that sucks. That's weird. That that feels that's something I can't really <laughs> change. And um and I wouldn't do it any differently, but but I did not expect that to be the case. Is that because of the removal of the one testicle you had, or is that because of the surgery of the micro T surgery that, that you had? Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. You know what? You're right. I'm getting my, my lines crossed here. Um, the surgery to remove the testicle has resulted in that feeling. The other one still, um, yeah, for a couple months afterwards, it would have like, it would like, some like pulsing sensation if I was like masturbating or if I was um, 
sitting for any sort of too long or anything, but no, yeah, thank you for correcting me on that. You're right, you're right. Um, the MTZ, as far as I can tell, I don't think there's any sort of lasting pain, um, and the scar on the scrotum is healed, and I'm fine. So were, were you, like, obviously they cut open your, your scrotum and your testicle, and yeah. How, how was, I mean, I'm going to get detailed here for all the people out yeah, there. I mean, it, you, yeah. you're, you're totally fine with sharing. How was yep. it like peeing yep. or just like function? Like, obviously you weren't having sex during that right. period of time because of probably pain, but yep. how, how was just that general function of, of down there? It was okay. Um, it was okay. Like I got pretty good at dressing, the, like dressing the wound and um, the instructions were really clear on that. Um, there wasn't, I don't think there was any pain for peeing. It was more like, um, it was more just sort of like, I don't know if the term might be referral pain, but just like, um, surrounding areas were kind of tense. Like they were, um, you know, being, being immobile for a couple of days can, can kind of cause stiffness and, and, and some tension, but like, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of grasping at straws here. I don't remember there being really any complications there. Um, what I would, what I honestly would just say is like, um, like just it, I was just very, very lucky to have, um, have my partner there and to have parents who, who dropped by, um, you know, when my partner couldn't be there, my dad would come. You had the, you had the emotional support that you needed during that time of, um, fine. You know, this, this was, what, what was the period of time from like diagnosis to, like my, I know that you had a six month gap, but yeah. like diagnosis to getting your testicle removed to then micro like what was that time yeah. period? I found out February. So it's coming up February 20th is my anniversary. Um, so I found out February 20th and then I had the micro on the 20, 20th of December, I think. 21st, okay. Maybe. So about 10 months. So yeah, you're, you're like, that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a fast forward of just from oh, diagnosis man. to, yep. So how are you now with coping and are you on testosterone? Like what's life like now? Well, like, you know, we, we were almost, we were going, we were almost going to do the transfer right after the surgery. And and I I was just like, man, we need to process this. Like, you know, I, I, we need to slow down and just relax and let it, let it, um, let it start to spill out. So where I'm at, um, I started taking, I started taking testosterone in uh, February last year. And like, I honestly do. It was like the first day I remember I, I got up at like five. I like went to like a hot yoga class for six thirty, did it. And then I put the testosterone on after I showered after the class. And like within 20 minutes, like, it, like, I, I don't know. I just like, I was confident if that makes any sense. I like kind of had like a, I kind of had like, um, there was almost like a, I don't want to say bullish, but there was like, I was, when I thought something, I acted on it, if that makes any sense. Like I had a bit of a fire where I previously would have to like think about whether or not I wanted to assign fire to this thought or assign something to this action, you know, um, interactions with that work and, and with people, I was just, I was so much more present and I was the biggest thing I realized was like, um, I, I, like I was advocating on my own behalf in interactions with people. Like I wasn't 
as as often doing or saying things that was kind of getting me into a point where I was agreeing to too much or I was, you know, being sort of like uh, the nice guy, like oh, the yes man. Yeah. Like... Yeah. But not in a way that was serving me or necessarily serving the other person either, you know? Um, and, and I was really careful. I like, I was like, I don't want this to be placebo. Like let's, let's not celebrate this just yet. And I waited a couple of days before I really started talking about it, but yeah, no, it was like overnight. So or like that, it was that morning. And then, so now that you, so you were basically, you got diagnosed, you went a year without yep. testosterone. You've yeah. been on testosterone yeah. for now almost a year. Almost a year. What yeah. has, what have some of the things that you've noticed being on testosterone that yeah. you didn't have in your earlier life, be, even before diagnosis? Sure, sure. Um, muscle growth. And like, what's, so like I did, I did like, um, I counted, I did about 320 hot yoga classes um from 2018 to about the middle of like sort of 2019 or so i just i just became obsessed um and uh but i didn't build any muscle during that like i got toned but i didn't really build anything um i would work out at gyms when i was like younger like kind of on and off but like it was the same thing like muscle definition would happen and what i noticed and i think what i've realized is like what I got good at was the act of lifting something, like the technique of lifting something I got very, very good at and very, very efficient at. But I wasn't actually building muscle to lift more. I was just getting better at it. So I would kind of graduate to heavier and heavier things. So honestly, man, like uh, two months into having testosterone, I dug up my front lawn so that we could put in, we got a grant from the city with a bunch of our neighbors to put in uh, pollinator plants to support um butterflies and, and bees in the area and so I, I lifted um 16 metric tons of soil so like eight cubic yards of, of soil from my, my and i did this over like the course of like three weeks and i remember like after the first week i had bulked up considerably and i felt what it was like to not only be able to lift heavy things but to actually feel muscles like rubbing up against each other in action and i've never experienced that before that's so cool that you're so like yeah. that you're so um in tune in tune with your own body of what life mm. was like before and what life was like after um mm. i think there's so many questions around testosterone and a lot of families yeah. and other guys have their own questions about do i need mm. this do i you know and, and mm. that's such a positive re another positive reinforcement of you know cool. like that you could just notice like muscle growth that you didn't have. And what about like yeah. cognitively or sex drive? Did you notice like a difference there or did you ever have like anything as far as that you know, goes? Oh, yeah. So, so like cognitive, yeah. Like um, some, some better focus, although I, I've been on um, Concerta, which is a brand name for methylphenidate, which is like, like Ritalin or like um, Adderall um, for, six or seven years now because I was diagnosed with ADHD as a kid or as a teenager. Um, so like, I don't really know yet what, how they compare yet, but I, but I could say, I could say at least it's like that, that effect that I was referring to when I first tried it, where there's a bit more of a follow through and there's a bit more of a like confidence in the moment. So I'm not sure if that's cognitive but it definitely, it definitely affects my ability to assert myself in a conversation or in 
um, any kind of situation. So that's that would be sort of maybe the the cognitive cognitive effects. But in terms of sex drive, it didn't change. It didn't really change my sex drive. But one thing I noticed was like from being a teenager onward, when I would masturbate, like I remember like my all my my guy friends would be like, oh, I'm so stressed. I would just I jerk off and then and then I was fine, you know. And that was never my experience. I'd like. I'd okay, I'd be stressed and then I'd masturbate and I would just feel dreadful the whole day. Like low energy and I'd get depressed and I'd just get sad and I wouldn't want to talk to anyone and I wouldn't want to go out. And and then I remember like I don't know, it was maybe a day or two into taking testosterone. I just like got up in the morning, I put it on, and then an hour later I, I was like, Yeah, let's see. And I masturbated. I felt fine the rest of the day. Like I actually experienced what my friends experienced in high school of like experiencing that relax, like experiencing that relaxation of just kind of letting some steam off, you know? Yeah. I wonder, I wonder how many other guys, you know, with, as we continue to do this podcast, how many other guys are a open to talking about that, but also like Mm -hmm. have had that kind of same feeling. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm curious Mm -hmm. about kind of, I want to dive deep into just like your life outside yeah. of XXY, you know, what, sure. um, P, you mentioned PhD a bunch of times. So sure. I, I want to kind of, did you go to college? Obviously you went to college if you're getting your PhD. So can yeah. you give us a little background on kind of maybe pre-diagnosis, what you did yeah. college and then, and then we'll sure. go from there. Sure. Well, I, I can say that I, and, and this is also why that statement from the doctor, like, Oh, your PhD, obviously you're smart. Like you're, you probably don't have this as bad or whatever. I struggled so hard in school. Like, you know, I, I just got used to getting bad grades and I like kind of just, it just, you know, and I, I remember in high school, I was like, I'm not going to get into university. Or if I do get into university, like, I'm not going to know what to study or I'm not going to know, like, I just don't want to, I don't want to risk like failing at a university. I don't know what to do. So I actually, I took a year, I took an extra year of, of high school, which, you know, I don't know if I would recommend that or do it again, but um, I sort of like kind of played my way through through uh, for the next couple of years by um, I, w- I was interested in music. I was interested in the music industry. Um, I was managing a musician actually for, for a while. I was promoting concerts. I was always really like very good at like finding really talented musicians and creating really cool conditions for them to like shine on stage. So I, I did that for a while and then I I just got back into playing music. I'd, I'd grown up playing music and um, started playing guitar, started playing in bands, started realizing that like, okay, I idolize soloists, but I don't really want to be a good soloist. What I really care about is like, how can I make guitar sound like n- not like a guitar at all? Like, what are the what are the like most extreme sounds I can get out of this instrument and you know, how do I play with feedback and how do I do all these neat things? And eventually I just got really lucky where um, a couple things kind of converged where I was, I was, I guess I was 23 and my partner had just started doing like um, graduate school. A few of my other friends were doing graduate school. They were telling me about conversations they were having. I was like, wow, that's what school could be like. I was like, well, let's see, where, where can I go? And, and I, I just got lucky. I found a, a program in Montreal, in Canada, um, at Concordia University. That's like a music program from like musical misfits, like people that that um, 
they don't really fit into jazz. They don't necessarily fit into classical. Um, maybe they're DJs. Maybe they're um, they're interested in like uh, circuit bending or hardware hacking or um, you know or or they just kind of think differently about um, about music. And so I applied and and I got in and I spent four years doing everything from playing with modular synthesizers to you know, doing field recordings around the city of Montreal and then chopping it up and tweaking it and processing it and then playing it at a concert hall to getting really into um, uh, programming language that's designed for artists that um, is diagram-based. So it's really good for people who are visual learners um, called Peer Data. Um, and I, I built instruments, I did compositions, I did, um, I did pieces that were... Um, like network oriented so like where everybody is on basically it's like a, a musical land party right like everyone's on the same network and um and their code is all kind of connected together and they're sharing ideas or sharing sounds and, um yeah it was just a really wonderful time and um so i i i, I did that and then i um I, I i moved back to toronto which is where my partner was and 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 uh and started a master's and then eventually a phd um where my project is uh, I'm really interested in the history of or like the, how how a musical composition or a musical instrument changes over time and and uh, sort of my approach is let's document each of the changes as they happen in uh, in an archive that can tell us things about when those changes were made, who made those changes, who encountered those changes. That way the composition process isn't um it's not uh it's not so opaque or it's not so um hidden from uh other composers or other musicians so that we can get away from the idea that the composer disappears into some cabin for a couple years and emerges as a genius and nothing influenced them and um you know they didn't borrow from any other ideas so um yeah and so i guess I know I'm kind of blabbing, but the, the last thing I'll just sort of say about all this is that um, the way that I'm sort of expressing these ideas is with um, a virtual reality environment in which you can um, program within virtual reality uh, electronic musical instruments uh, as an individual or with multiple people at the same time. Uh, and my ideas around thinking about changes to instruments or changes to objects um, is, is right in there so that uh, at any point in time you can go back to a previous version of your instrument and start to look at, um, oh, well, I, I made these changes, but I made these changes. Maybe I could combine these ch changes for a new idea or something like that. So you're definitely really, really, you're definitely yeah. not blabbing i mean this is so in, this is so interesting <laughs> to me this is like a whole nother like you're blowing my mind right now i mean <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so <laughs> i definitely understand vr and and it, that's such a cool way to create like you're allowing people in a virtual world to see like an instrument and then see what mm -hmm. they you can go they can go back to like where the instrument started and then where it is now with what they created like Yes. In, and, in, and the idea is that the any of the stages, like any of the changes that you make, um, basically you have a you have a log, a history of all these changes. So if you apply the changes one after the other, you're going to reach a different state of the in, the instrument's sort of um, development history. So um, yeah, it, it, I think it has an educational interest. I think it has a really a real interest in terms of think like 
applying what people um, typically think about sampling, right? Or, or um, so instead of sampling uh, musical material, you're sampling like um, uh, like historical material <laughs> in a way, right? Um, yeah. So I'm kind of where I'm at. There's and so I'm curious, like, yeah, how. Sure your brain operates like you're so mm. detailed with the P with getting this PhD. Like you obviously understand you've been through the struggles of high school and, you know, yeah. reading, learning, writing, spelling, like all mm. the possibilities of, of that you struggled with. What were those kind of struggles and how did you like train yourself to overcome them or teach yourself in college that I need to study this differently or, you know, how did you piece together everything because you only got diagnosed two years ago. So yeah, yeah. how did you go about that? Well, and I'm still struggle. I still struggle with reading, you know, and it's, and that's something that, that I don't like, I'm super self-conscious about, but I don't think you'll meet any grad student that isn't self-conscious about a bunch of things. <laughs> so I won't go down that path, but um, you know, I, I, I would say that um, on one hand, I think, I think I, I just got lucky that I found a program like that, that undergraduate program for electroacoustic music at Concordia University where they really privileged like concepts and ideas over um, how you then achieve those concepts and ideas. And so, um, so just to, to say that like you could be a DJ and realize a work or you could be a guitarist and complete the same assignment and so what that really meant was that however it is that I wanted to tackle a problem I could do it so um so in other words like I kind of got to a point where I realized maybe a secret to art school is like bending the will of the teacher to as close to the thing that I actually want to make while still you know getting a uh, getting a decent grade I guess so um the answer I could just give is like I, I I was always just like fiercely fiercely driven about my own passions and about my own interests. I mean that was the way it was from a very early age, and um, it doesn't always end well, and it it's not, it can get me into trouble. And I think to answer your question about like things that I've like tried to have had to sort of figure out is. Um, yeah, like I'm, I'm still working on that. I have, I've had ADHD coaches. I have, uh, I have a therapist. Um, so, you know, it, it's, I guess it's, um, I guess in terms of the success of it is just doubling down on the things that I like and the things that I want to do. Um, and then in terms of what doesn't work is trying to be as open as I can be to that fact that that I am making these mistakes over and over again, or I am um, not seeing this thing clearly that has happened before. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it doesn't. And I think like mm -hmm. you say lucky, but I think your path with where you're at in your life, like this school was meant for you and it just happened yeah, that it, it just flowed into your life in the right moments mm -hmm. in the right time. And like to be able to be, I went to culinary school and I was a chef for almost cool. 10 years. And so wow. that visual, like music's very much the same of like working with your hands and um, problem solving mm -hmm. and like, do, like trying to link the two learning styles together. And um, mm -hmm. you just were, you were in an environment around creative people. Like you said, yeah. creative misfits. And that, that's so, that's such yeah. a cool concept right there to it's me. so important, man. Oh, yeah, like it, honestly, they prided themselves on being the only. I don't know if 
this is still the case, but when I was there six or seven years ago, it's the only music composition program in at least North America, if not the world, where you don't have to know how to play an instrument to be accepted in, right? Because like a, a laptop can be an instrument, you know? Yeah. And it's, um, and it's that mindset. So like the teachers yeah. and all the other people that are involved in that, there's definitely this like team building, probably like team oriented where everybody's like, yeah, we're, we are the misfits, but they know that and they're willing to help each other out because each person has something that is creative and different to bring to the table that they could learn from somebody else. And that's mm-hmm. such a powerful environment. I think, you know, when we, I talk to a lot of families, we talk about college, we talk about trade schools and all this. And mm-hmm. so what you said that you're passionate, like the passion that drove you so many of us, we, what the things that we love doing, like cars or cooking or photography mm-hmm. or music, those are the things that we absolutely love. And we're like those other topics that college offers. We don't like those and we're not going to put any effort or energy into that stuff. And we want to like drive with what our passion is. And mm-hmm. there's to find a school that's driven to your pure, like your passion. That's like, that's definitely like culinary school was for me. That was the direct passion that I wanted to go. And I had so much joy and love for everything culinary that everything else that was difficult for me wasn't, it was difficult, but I knew that I had to do the difficult stuff yeah. to get to where I wanted to go. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Yep. So what's, Absolutely. have you worked? Have you like, you know, obviously you've been in school for such a long time. Are there jobs that have come into your life and gone and gone within music or, you know, what, yeah. um, yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, well, so I, part of my funding as a graduate student comes from um, from teaching. So I, I, w- I would I'd be a TA or teaching assistant in a couple of courses. Uh, I was a uh, I, I taught a course um, that was uh, video game history, which was super cool. Um, I also uh, past couple years taught um, a course that was sort of geared towards sound art and video art and sort of looking at programming. To, to, to sort of do these these types of works, um, and so in that I'm starting to now sort of um, uh, expand out and, and do um, uh, private lessons. So I'm teaching JavaScript. I teach um, I teach Pure Data or Max MSP. These are these languages that are designed for artists or people who think sort of spatially or uh, visually. Um, I also I also uh, teach. Um, how to how to get into streaming, like how to perform online, or how to use OBS or Twitch or anything like that. Um, and then also, um, I run a concert series now that's all online, where I'm uh, you know producing a monthly concert series for uh, musicians and dancers and um, video artists. And uh, and also, I guess um, hmm, when I had the cancer scare, uh, I just. Like, I was like, man, I'm not playing enough music. Like, I wasn't doing gigs. I hadn't played a gig in, in, in years. So I, I, said, I, I said to myself, like, I think the thing I most love is, is, to, is to improvise. So I'm going to figure out how to, how to do that. And I threw myself into the Toronto improvisation, improvisation community and within a couple months was gigging like two, three times, two, two times a week even, I think it got to a point. So, um, yeah, so, um, you know, there's not a, a ton of money that's coming from that at the moment, but but I've had some I've had some gigs that are some honorarium gigs and some other things that have come up that have um, been a ton of fun. So I sit at home with my synthesizer and my webcam and jam with people over the internet in real time. That's sure. that's uh you know the technology that's allowing all this to happen, yeah. and then you're understanding 
not only the technology, JavaScript, and all these other programs, you sure. know, Twitch and all this. That's yeah. definitely, you've got a lot of knowledge. And I think one of the tributes, you know, one of the great tributes of ADHD is allowing yourself mm. to do like multiple things at once and, 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 uh, what is it? Multitask. And, you know, as a chef, I, I recently had a, yesterday I had a, a visit with a, psych- a psychologist for the first time in 10 years and, um, or even greater than that. And in the culinary world, as a chef, you're working with your hands and you're doing all these multiple things at once, just like music. And then you mm. kind of go into a different environment that you're not necessarily, you know, in the ADHD or the ADD might present itself more in a different environment. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just really interesting to hear you talk about music and, and your life and all that. What um, I'm really curious to kind of step away from this and talk yeah. more about just general life for you, like sure. sports, family, mm-hmm. like all of that stuff in general. Um, what are some passions outside of music in your life that kind of give you peace of mind? Do you have yeah. Do you have depression? Do you have anxiety? Like what, what are some, some of the yeah. kind of day-to-day life in, in Michael's brain? Sure. Um, I, I, let's, let's talk about depression and anxiety in a moment. So please, if I forget to bring that up, can you bring that up again? Uh, absolutely. Um, but, but just to, to answer your question about um, the, the, the thing that kind of immediately kind of jumped out to me, you know, where I'm sitting, I have sort of two windows that are looking out on different neighbors' yards. And, um, you know, what I, I I've always been, like I've always met tons of people. Like I, I just am very good at meeting people. I, I had a grandfather that was just very friendly and would always shovel up people's driveways and would always say hi. And I just really admired that about about John Buchanan. And um, you know, I just I we are lucky to be sort of where our house is. We have like nine neighbors that surround our property, um, and we're all kind of close. And and it's just a really vibrant community. When we moved here. Uh, four years ago, there were like kids on scooters, like going up and down the street and into each other's houses. Um, the people on the corner have like a, a pool and like they're, they're always like asking us to like join them and like swim in it within our way and stuff. And we have this other neighbor I mentioned where we have the, um, we got the grant to do the, the pollinator garden. They're interested in, in food security and um, in, uh, in um, you know, sustainable and urban farming. So so really, to answer that question, like what is what is my life like? What are my passions? Community, community is a huge, 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 huge thing for me, and, and something that you know is not a surprise to any of my friends when I bring it up, but still baffles me that it didn't make sense. Was when I started taking testosterone, I'm like, oh my god, I'm an extrovert. <laughs> like I actually really, I really get uh, energized by being around others, and so like when I think about the online concerts that I'm running where the sort of stated goal is to both demystify improvisation and demystify playing online. It's a, the goal is to get as many of my music friends and others online playing together and really to support them to continue their practice when self-isolation, as far as they were concerned, pretty much canceled any gigs that they had. Right. So yeah, absolutely. There's that there's the fact that, you know, in my neighborhood, um, you know, I started a WhatsApp group when self-isolation happened. Now there's like, 30 households and we're trading puzzles and we're trading flour whenever someone needs one. And, you know, we, um, we put in a fire pit in our backyard so that, uh, um, so that like, if, you know, we could have like socially distanced hangs that were still safe, you know, in the wintertime. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I like community. I'm really big fan of, of, um, of meeting as many people as I can. And, and um, it's, it's really important to me that, that they know that, that they matter. So, 
So yeah, with maybe what I'd say. with that community, like how was it grown? Mm-hmm. Well, how was it grown up? Family, you close with family, like good relationships yeah. there. It sounds like it sounds yeah, like yeah, there's yeah. some solid stuff. Yeah, yeah. So like a big Italian family on my dad's side, and um, uh, a smaller, immediate but larger extended family um, on my mom's side that have like um, sort of roots to to to, to, to farmland around Toronto, where. Um, you know, the, my grand, both my grandparents grew up on farms and in, in the in, in and around the same community that I grew up in. So, um, yeah, just like like you know, my the, the Italians are just gregarious and hilarious and like really really welcoming and fun and um, and really you know, loud, really loud and hilarious <laughs> and just like you know, but also just like you know, just super super cool and, and really really nice and um, so yeah, like I grew up where um, you know Christmas was always spent at one family one night and then the next night driving to the other family. And um, my cousins were almost like some of my cousins, like were some of my best friends growing up, Um, you know? uh, Yeah. Just, just, yeah, just, just, just really, really fortunate to, to have had like really great neighbors that like one one of my neighbors, they were like, this is at my parents' place. um, They were like, um, they were older and they, they kind of saw themselves as like my third set of grandparents. Like they came to like school events and they'd have us over. And when we renovated our house, they put us up for like six months. Like it was just, yeah, really lucky and really, really cool. That um, sounds, that sounds awesome. I'm, I'm curious, were yeah. you in grade school and kind of high schoolish? Were you bullied at all? Um, a little, a little, like there, there was like, there was like sort of like, it was my turn that month to kind of get picked on by the bully. I remember when I was really young, um, I would, I just became friends with everybody that, uh, that like kind of nobody had a problem with me kind of thing, you know? Um, but I remember, I do remember there would be some times when, you know, like a kid was trying to explain something to me and it took me longer to figure it out or, you know, and then they'd sort of say, like, you know, in a very condescending or sort of aggressive tone, like, you have a, oh, man, of course you have a learning disability. Like, <laughs> stuff like that, you know, right. where where that kind of sucked. But, like, I think for the most part, yeah, and, although, like, yeah, when I when I hit puberty, there was definitely, there started to get to be, like, a, I started realizing there was kind of a distance between myself and my friends where they all just, all of them, even the the the, the, the kids that were younger than me, um, like the grade nines or tens when I was in grade 11, let's say, they all seemed older than me. Like I, I had this sense that they were kind of older and, and they would often, you know, like things like when, when my friends would do like dark humor, like it was fine. But if I did it, they would be like, Oh, that's, that's dark, man. You don't, you don't need to say that. You know? So like, as if I was a child where I wasn't big enough to play in the sandbox kind of thing. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I think I was pretty lucky. I didn't really get um, bullied. Uh, so I'm, I'm just curious. You mentioned, I'm kind of like, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you and, and I know where, yeah. um, so you mentioned like puberty and, and you talked mm-hmm. about Bikram and taking your shirt off earlier and, and mentioned yeah. uh, glidocomastia. And so you have glidocomastia or gyno and glidocomastia and, and, how was it like knowing that you had it? And then when did yeah. you come to this realization that you were okay with yourself of taking your shirt off in public and, you know, being completely confident in who you are and not letting your, 
you know, man boobs uh, or moobs as a lot of guys call them, yeah. like um, keep you from, like keep you kind of locked underneath your shirt? Um, my whole life. Yep. Uh, you know, um, and it, I also have really sweaty hands. So like being around girls was really hard because like I felt like I wasn't masculine and if we were going to hold hands, they were immediately going to pull away, you know? So yeah, that was like, that was like my whole life. Um, and it didn't really stop being, <sighs> I, I, I'd be lying if I said I, it didn't still sometimes bother me, but, but honestly, what, what really changed it was um, when I f- first went to a hot yoga class, um, I <laughs> like, I'm, I'm going to sweat like crazy or I could take my shirt off and it'd be a little bit more comfortable. <laughs> so it just, I was like, all right, that guy has a shirt off. So I just took it off. Um, but you know, for the first, like, I remember the, the first year or so, like I'd, I'd be walking around in the, in the, in the yoga studio without a shirt on and, and I could see, I could see women kind of glancing down and, and looking uncomfortable. Like it wasn't that they were, it wasn't like the male gaze of, you know, um, of sort of leering or anything like that. It was more, it was more like, oh, there's something wrong or, oh, that makes me uncomfortable was the look, you know? And, and that, that was hard, but eventually, I don't know, eventually it kind of just, I just, I just knew that I wanted to be there, you know? And I knew that like my, um, sleeping hero pose was getting better and better you know you you focused on the things that gave you confidence like the actual yoga itself and you didn't let the limitations of taking your shirt off you know to be more comfortable to be able to do those Mm -hmm. things in a better position you focused on you focused on that and you didn't focus on what everybody else was looking at or you know if they were looking at you 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 got to the point probably where you didn't even notice that they were looking at you because you were so focused in the craft that you were developing. Yeah. And I think I also just like, I I guess I also kind of just got used to it too, you know? And, and when the Kleinfelter um, diagnosis came along, then it was just kind of like, it was, it like just faded to the background in terms of like, if someone saw it, it was more like, well, yeah, they're seeing me, but I, I know me now. (laughs) So cool. They're seeing me, you know? Um, and that's kind of, that's like where I'm at now is like, um, is just like, you know, through my twenties thinking, I probably should get this surgery to now being like, you know, I mean, I mean, if I have to, because of health reasons, I think I will, but I'm starting to think like, ah, this is my body and I don't, I've already had two surgeries. Um, one that left me with one less, like, you know, where, where like, you know, tissue was taken out and is not going to return. I don't know if I want that again. So I'm not sure. I'm I'm, I'm kind of optimistic or open or open-minded, I should say. Well, I mean, you're uh, you're only you're only two years into your diagnosis, which yeah, you know that's, that's you've done it. You've done a lot for being yeah. you know just diagnosed in two years. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious about this like self-acceptance of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. You you mm-hmm. you had glycomastia, you still have it, and you, now you've you've fully embraced yourself, like what you just said. Right. How is it yeah. with communicating? to others about Kleinfelder syndrome, your parents, family, friends, are you, yeah. are you open about it? Are you close? Yeah. Like, where, where are you at with that? I'm very open. Um, I mean, I, um, I, like I, it, it was the kind of thing where it was like, it, like I was, I mean, at first I was devastated. I think I was devastated by, um, 
by like having tried for years with different specialists to figure out what it is that gets in my way, you know, and never quite, never quite getting it. And then having this drop on me. And at first I was like, I cannot take if this is wrong. If this is wrong, it's going to be one more disappointment, you know? Uh, but but once I got past that, I just couldn't wait to talk about it. Like, um, we talked to my family, my parents, I guess, two or three weeks after the diagnosis because um, we just realized that, like, suddenly we were, like, we went from, like, kind of being like, yeah, I think we, we want kids, but we're not sure when, to being like, this has to happen now. So, obviously, we wanted them to know about that. But there was also going to be like a potential like financial burden from the fertility clinics um, in terms of the, the cost of, 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 of doing all these procedures and everything. And so we knew that, that there may be a chance that we would need to like rely on them for that. And so they, we just went to them and we, we told them and they were, my parents were super supportive. Um, you know, um, yeah, my sister, sister's been, been pretty cool about it. Uh, you know, um, uh, I had my, my cousin, one of my cousins came after I had the, 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 the cancer scare and hung out with me on my deck. And he was just like, man, when you take testosterone, you're going to be jacked. You know, like, it was just like, there was like some cute, cute things about it. But I guess if I, if I could complain about one thing, I think, I think, you know, um, maybe if I was, you know, I, um, I think there is an aspect of, I, I, I've noticed this and it's definitely prevalent in, in infertility where people don't want to rock the boat and they, they, they don't want to risk saying the wrong thing or they don't want to risk, you know, disturbing me or anything. And as you can tell, I'm quite open about all this kind of stuff. I, I, I do wish that the people in my life um, did reach out more a little bit to say like, um, you know, uh, how, how's that, how's the condition going or, you know, um, you know, Oh, I, I, I learned this about it. Did you know, you know, but, but at the same time, you know, I'm also, I try to be really careful about that because um, I also think I could probably do more to say, like, you know, whatever it is they're going through, hey, how's that going? Or, hey, I read about this, you know? So um, I think I'm pretty level on it. Uh, I think yeah, that's... overall, I have the support that I want if I if I want to get it. So. Yeah, that seems like more of like a friendship base of just communicating. Yeah. And we live in such a fast world nowadays. And all of yeah. there's so much complication with everything and even just, just trying yeah. to buy something on Amazon, there's 500 million things that you can buy on there. You know, yeah. um, yeah. it's, it's really cool that you're doing this podcast with us and, and you're sharing about your life sure. so openly. I mean, you talk about being yeah. open about Kleinfelter syndrome and one of the biggest things that is so beneficial, I think is, you know, you might've, you opened up to your parents, you opened up to your cousins and your family and you got support. Mm-hmm. And, a lot yeah. of families are really scared to open up to their family about yeah. their son's diagnosis or yeah, understandable. Yeah, yep. totally. Cause yeah. of the stigma and, yeah. you know, doing mm-hmm. this podcast and presenting your life in this way and, and, you know, showing this community that, Hey, like, look, I'm Michael. This is, you know, this is what I've gone through. This is what I'm doing for my, I have, I'm getting my PhD, like all these amazing things that you're accomplishing. You're breaking down every single one of those stigmas that is these doctors that told you like, Oh, well, you don't worry. You, you don't have it because yeah. you have a PhD. Like you're, you're providing education by just sharing your life. And cool. that's, that's so beneficial to our community and everybody that's, you know, listening right. to this podcast. Well, it, you know, I appreciate you saying that. And man, I want to, I want to, in that case, I, I, I do want to make sure that I answer your question about anxiety and depression, because that is something that uh, really thrives in, in the shadows. Right. And, um, <laughs> yeah, totally. I, 
I, you know, I, 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 I did struggle with, with, uh, with depression tremendously. Um, like I always knew it, but I never told anyone. And it wasn't until like a couple's counseling session with my partner, like in October, I think it was where like, it, it just kind of came out where I said like, yeah, you know, actually since the age of, uh, what am I, 34 now, since the age of like 21 or so, I've thought about suicide. I've been majorly depressed. I've gone through, I've gone in and out of cycles where like, you know, um, like before the testosterone, especially I'd go a couple of days where I, like no one would hear from me. I was like stuck in bed. I was like afraid to leave the house. Just so, so sad. And then I'd kind of come out and I'd be, I might be okay. And then it would slowly start to be okay. And then slowly I'd be better and then I'd be great. And then I, things would be awesome. And then I'd, I'd go right back into the crash. And, and I can say that the testosterone has leveled that, but the thing that has helped the most was just opening up about it. Um, and having, having some, um, you know, I'm fortunate to have some, uh, some excellent uh, mental health, uh, being the care of some excellent mental health uh, professionals. My, my, my therapist and our couple counselors, both of them taking it really seriously. My partner taking it very seriously. Um, and a few friends that I've opened up to just being, being there for me. Um, that, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I honestly, like I, it's that thing where I just didn't want to worry anybody. I, I would convince myself it wasn't that big a deal, but it would get to a point where I would just get so, feel so trapped that like, you know, yeah, like maybe, maybe killing myself would be okay, you know? Um, and it, it's, a, it's so new, it's so new a revelation. Like I'm, you know, I only started talking about this two months ago to anybody. Right. But, um, but in that time, it, it's, uh, Opening up about it has helped helped tremendously, and so I just want to make sure that we don't. Uh, since you asked, I don't. Yeah, want I think that just things. having the courage to open up and talk about it, it teaches yourself. Yeah. Like you get to listen to yourself talk, and you're like, "Wait, did I just yeah. say that?" And Definitely. you're able to then like leave that conversation behind or wherever, and then sometimes that conversation might pop up like deja vu, and you'll be like, "Whoa, mm-hmm. I like I opened up and I said like when I wasn't doing good or." when I had depression, I mean, I totally understand that whole lock yourself inside your house. I mean, I use an analogy of like, I put up the longer I stay in my house, the more bars go up on the windows and the harder Uh, it is to leave. And one of the biggest analogies I would use for kids and myself is like, just walk to the mailbox. Like the mailbox might be Mm. down, down the street. It might be like really close to your house, but it forces you to get outside. And then every day, like there's so much routine out in this world. Like the more you get outside, the more people you might recognize on a regular basis. And then as time goes on, you might recognize the same person at the same time walking and you, then you might reach out and say, hello, like you, mm-hmm. you just, or you might nod to them. And, um, I definitely understand that cycle of, of going in and out of that. Um, you know, yeah, it's, it's one of those yeah. where you don't necessarily know what it is like anxiety and, mm. until you actually understand you like read about it and then you like accept it and you're like, yeah, yeah, I have, I have that. Yeah. Well, I, and I didn't like, it wasn't until I started talking about it in therapy that I even realized it was a problem. Like I had all, like all this time, even though I went through it and it was fucking awful, I still didn't see it as, as a problem in a way, like, or as something that like I needed to, to air and discuss and actually like open up about. And, and so so now that I have, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm, I'm better or whatever it is, but but when those thoughts come up, that I've noticed that they don't 
they're not penetrating in the same way. I'm not saying that they won't. Forever, you're learning. But I'm sure. You're learning. I'm learning. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're learning, learning and some, you're you're pushing I'm to protect myself more. You know? Yep, absolutely. And you're pushing yourself yeah. to like as soon as those thoughts come in your mind, you're pushing them to get out of your mind and you're looking at all of, you know, looking at all the positives and everything that you've done in your life. And for us, you know, you talk about confidence. It's, it's a little bit harder. I think for a lot of boys and guys with XXY to look confidently at themselves and, you know, and and have that confidence within, within themselves. Um, I've definitely noticed that from all the guys I've met all over the world and all the people I've talked yeah, to, right. there's definitely something yeah. there with confidence, but yeah. man, you're, you're doing well for two years being diagnosed and, and, Thanks. um, you know, sharing your story today has just been absolutely wonderful having you on the show. And cool. do you, is there anything else that you would want to say to this community out there? I mean, or anything that you yeah. want to talk about that you haven't talked yeah. about yet? Yeah. Real, real, real quick. I think, um, two things. One is that the, the access, uh, genetics um, conference is June 21st to the 27th. Um, it's all online this year, and if you can't afford to go uh, like with a ticket, they have uh, limited scholarships. And if you can go and you think you can um, afford it, you can buy a scholarship ticket for someone else, and it'll just go into the pool. So that's that's number one. Um, number two is that I'll also mention um, that. Uh, and I guess maybe Ryan, you can put up on the site maybe the the, the links to that um, um, to that uh, to that conference, hopefully. Um, but the the second thing is that um, uh, I've been I, I was participating in a number of sort of support groups. <laughs> I learned what support groups are this you know, this past two years. You know, um, in Canada, there's the Do- Donor Conception Canada that I want to give a shout out to. Um, uh, uh, sort of, you know, um, Vince Lindini is, is the guy that's been been the real real um, He's just a hero. Um, so if you're sort of looking at donor conception or anything related to infertility and you're in Canada, uh, reach out to, to DCC. Um, they're, they're fantastic. Um, they have support groups all the time. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I just want to say that like I, I, I was participating in a lot of support groups and I, and I started to notice that sometimes um, sometimes there, there was a trend where, where um, um, you know, because you're suddenly in a room with people who get where you're coming from, you know, um, mostly, um, there, there tended to be like a, 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 there was a tendency to sort of only complain, you know, like um, only talk about the things that really suck. And um, and so I started thinking about a, another way to do this. And I, I started uh, hosting um, a support group with Axis. Uh, uh, I did two different seasons of it. I did uh, four, four weekends in, or four, four, Four sessions over the course of eight weeks in the fall, and then uh, four more uh, in the fall. Um, and I called it the Creative Self-Expression Group. And what I want to be really clear about is that I'm not uh, condemning negative thoughts. I'm not condemning complaining at all. In fact, like um, I think that those they should have a place in the support group, and they they have a place in that support group. But the, what I was trying to challenge was um, a different way to express it. Right. So that rather than talking about the thing that sucks maybe thinking about a way to express it differently you know um one of the sessions that i i led i sang a song about you know a man who it's a song called fox on the run it's a beautiful country tune and really it's about a man who's never known never known a lover that's stuck around you know and and 
you know, I was going through some things at the time, not related to love, but but just feeling feeling lonely, and and it was my way of sort of expressing that, and um, and so the the idea behind this group really is that you could it could be like a show and tell. You could talk about, hey, I can throw this baseball real fast, you know, or um, hey, I, I do yoga, or as I you know uh, I did some yoga once, or hey, I'm I'm here's my awesome garden, um, but it can also be a place to um, to explore other ways of expressing the things that really are trying in Kleinfelter. And so while this isn't a plug because <laughs> we don't have any meetings scheduled just yet, but um, um, they're, 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 we will be having some more, I think, uh, in the future. So, um, so be on the lookout for that. Well, that's awesome. Thanks for um, tagging those in there. And we'll, you know, hopefully the people that listen to this, um, we'll, we'll put those up on the um on the podcast link and uh, cool. just wanted to say thank you for your time. Thank you for spending the last hour with us and um, oh, it's been a pleasure. can't wait yeah. to have this community have access to your story. Yeah. And, and, and in terms of access to me, um, I'm on Andrew's discord server. Um, I think probably as Palumbo. Um, you can find me at www.palumbomichael.com. Um, and I have a contact information there as well. So if anyone wants to reach out and, and talk more, I'm, I'm open. Yeah, we'll definitely plug your website into that as well. That's cool. that's a great shout out. Do you have any social media or anything else? Or do you, do you just want to stick to the Palumbo Michael? Yeah, my website is palumbomichael.com. My okay. Instagram is palumbolumbo. I think that's what I've been using. And recently I started going by the pseudonym Thispatcher for music. Um, but yeah, I can send you those links. And you can, yeah, that'd you know. be awesome. Thank you so much for joining us and um, we'll chat with you soon. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thank you for everything you do. It's a real, it's, um, it's, it's an honor and, and, um, and I know how, I know how hard you work at it. So, uh, so, so please, please uh, keep it up and, and thanks again. Yeah, absolutely. Cool.